Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance, and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than other automated market makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com AMM to get started and let the market work for you. Hey, Max Budin. Thank you for joining uh, Crypto Unstacked. Hey, nice to be with you here. Yeah, actually, uh, Max, I actually dressed up and put a proper shirt on today because it is uh, extremely rare to speak to uh, one of the OGs of uh, crypto market making. So, so you should consider yourself lucky. There you go. Thank you very much. I'm, you're making me feel self-conscious now because I'm, I'm always <laughs> in black jumper. Maybe people I, start to recognize. It suits you. So I just wanted to just touch on your background, first of all. And so you studied undergrad in Belgium, and then you went to Oxford to study financial economics. You then joined Google, or during that time, was that when you were at Google, during the Oxford days, or when did that No, that was, that was earlier. That was my first internship. I was only 19, uh, so that was my very first job, uh, except for picking up stones in a, in a field. Uh, yeah, that was my first job. And it was fascinating, because that's when I was first uh, exposed to electronic trading. Google had an internal market where you could bet on different outcomes related to Google, such as the number of users that Gmail would have six months from now, you know, things of that nature. And you could bet on those. And I created a, a small script that would look for what I would call arbitrage opportunities between different markets or different contracts and take advantage of them. And I became the number one trader at Google. Although I, I knew nothing of financial markets at that stage, I was just doing some simple statistics and uh, and, and supporting the the organization there. Uh, and I wasn't on the tech side either. Oh, that's fantastic. So what you were arbing the internal Google market with, say, Betfair and kind of external uh, betting exchanges? There was more, uh, actually, it, contracts on the market were sometimes poorly designed. And so you could make a certain profit with some strategy. I mean, it was, it was extremely simple in reality. I'm surprised they designed it like that. But you would have some contracts with actually the opposite, the flip side of one another. And so you could just buy one, sell the other and be flat, but make a certain profit. Oh, that is fantastic. And so that piqued your interest in financial markets overall, I guess. And is that what caused you to apply to Goldman's? Yeah, I did code. And so that's why I, I did that little but. But the, the thing was, I was 19, but all the other interns were typically much older. I think we're just two of us were 19 uh, in the intern class. And everyone else had worked at McKinsey, 
Lemon Brothers, uh, I think it was, was it 2007 or something like that, my internship. And they told me, oh, you know, Max, actually, there's a whole world outside of Google and tech. If you work in banking, like an M&A banker, you get paid 100,000 euros a year as a first year, but you need to work 90 hours a week. And I thought, hold on a second, I'm at Google, I'm smart, so I'll just compress the work in 45 hours and collect the paycheck. Of course, that is not how it works. So I did try my my luck and I got uh, I got those kind of jobs. I worked uh, at the short internship in private equity and I realized that the 90 hours a week are right. not compressible. They're there for a reason and it is not possible to just do the work in half the time. And that's what then turned me towards um, towards trading because the stuff that I did at Google with the internal market, I thought, hey, maybe I can do that for real in the real world in bigger sizes. And that's what I started doing, actually. I found yeah, platforms like Betfair that you mentioned. I started doing electronic market making on those platforms and that was quite successful. I made I made quite a bit of money for a 20-year-old at the time, and that's what got me those trading job offers. And I ended up going with, with Goldman, and I, I learned a ton there. But then in 20, late 2012, early 2013, my flatmate who was a quant at Goldman told me, hey, you should look into that Bitcoin thing because you're electronic market making. Maybe there's something to do. And actually, that coincided late 2012 with a crackdown on betting by the CFTC for U.S. citizens. And okay. so several platforms had to stop offering. I mean, a little bit like what we've gone through in crypto, where the crazy derivative exchanges are not open to U.S. citizens anymore. We went through that with the betting market around 2012. And so I actually repurposed my algos to the Bitcoin market. It wasn't really philosophical, the reason I joined the market, although I did buy a few Bitcoins. And yeah, the algorithms were kind of, they worked for Bitcoin as well. And that's what got me started on Mongox back in the day. But so, okay, just to, to recap. So by day, you're a uh, Goldman's FX trader and from work, you're trading crypto as well? Or had you left Goldman's by this point in 2012, 2013? So it was fully automated because when I started doing electronic market making, I was a student. I had better things to do than sit in front of the screens. So my motto was always, it's got to be fully automated. I worked on the weekends on my stuff and then it would run 24 seven. So that wasn't part of Goldman. In fact, funny enough, I, I did raise my hand. I said, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm involved in that market, Bitcoin, that they didn't really know what it was. So like, okay, sounds cool. And that was the end of it, crazy enough. I think if you try to do that, maybe not now because everyone now trades crypto PA, mm-hmm. uh, even if they work in banks. But if you go back to like 2017, I think that would have been looked upon differently. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then at at what point did you start thinking to yourself, look, I need to start my own business? And how did B2C2 come about? Mm -hmm. In 2014, the fixed income market, I was an interest rate swaps trader at that time. The fixed income market really sucked in terms of volumes, simply because of the zero interest rate policy globally Mm -hmm. that made it so that people didn't trade as much. And because the carry that you would get from just owning cash was very low, so the, 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 the transaction costs of switching in and out of positions were higher in comparison, at least that's my analysis. The market sucked. I knew bonuses were going to suck. My own performance wasn't that great that last year. And so I thought that Bitcoin thing seems to be working. I went through ups and downs because uh, in 2013, we had the first bubble 
Then in 2014, Mongox exploded. I think that's when they went bankrupt. But then things started to pick up again. Bitstamp was created in 2011 and became a more dominant player. Bitfinex as well came up and was quite big. So in 2014, I started to get the sense that there was something to do. And 2015, I picked up my last bonus in Q1 and I resigned and I started B2C2 full-time on 7th of May, 2015. Oh, fantastic. And was it just you or were there a couple of founding partners at the time? Yeah, so as I was uh, developing my own stuff, which I had been doing for some years, I met Flavio, mm-hmm. who was simply, I had a spare bedroom in my flat in London, and he was a friend of a friend, and he, he came there, he saw what I was doing on the weekend, so hey, that's kind of cool, dude, I, I would like to be a part of it. So we agreed, he was like the first employee, if you wish, made him a, a co-founder, and then we started, the two of us, I was more the CEO, I guess, and the a risk manager. And he was the CTO because he was 100% a coder, whereas my coding was always a bit, I coded on the side. I wasn't a, a dev by training. I learned a ton of about code through him and Flavio learned a ton about risk management through exposure. And we were just the two of us for a long time, actually, because the crypto market in 2015, 2016 was a little bit muted. There were, you know, some bull runs and bear markets, but we over, I think the top was pretty $1,300. And the bottom, something like $250 in during that time. Right. Some was exciting, but, you know, the company was making something like maybe $50,000 a month. You know, so nice for two guys in a garage, but not enough to support a big organization. But in late 2016, early 2017, that's when things started to really pick up. And you went from making $50,000 a month to $50,000 a day or even more in the big days, you know, November, December. So that's when we started hiring proper staff. I think we got our third employee was pretty Zane, who works yeah. at FTX now. He came from Bitfinex, and before that was at OKCoin. Okay He's been everywhere and has spent several years at B2C2 and is now at FTX. And Zane, I think, joined in 2016, late 2016, and he was responsible for marketing our single dealer platform. So maybe I need to give a bit of context here. B2C2 started out being the biggest market maker on exchanges. So we were like a third of the volume on Bitfinex, a third on Bitstamp, a third on all the major exchanges. But we thought, considering what we knew about traditional markets, that those businesses would become extremely competitive and not the kind of businesses that we necessarily want to be not in, but we don't want to rely on those to high-frequency market making an exchange to survive. And so we wanted to add a client business on top of that, which is the business that banks do, an OTC dealer, just simply a dealer. And so we came out in 2016 with the first single dealer platform in crypto. A single dealer platform is an electronic system, so be it API or websites, where clients can go and get prices electronically without speaking to a human person. Yeah. And that was important to us because the competitors at the time were Genesis, Cumberland, uh, Circle was getting started, and they were really not tech-centric organizations. And so they were focusing on the big block trades. So you would go to a Cumberland, and I think, by the way, I don't have confirmation of that, but if you remember in 20, I think 2013 or 2014, I think, Bitstamp was hacked and lost $5 million of client funds, which was huge at the time, but today wouldn't even register. They lost $5 million of Bitcoin. And they went to Cumberland to purchase the $5 million of Bitcoin back because it was client funds, right? So that's yeah, right. somehow. And so that was the bread and butter of a player like Cumberland. 
And so in coming with a single little platform, we, and over time it evolved, it became better. You could just get the same type of service, but without speaking to a human person. And what really changed the dynamic and was and proved to be the demise of Circle in 2019, if I remember, is that having not electronified quickly enough and the OTC market having developed from a segment of just block trades to actual electronic execution of trades as low as like $1,000, then they just didn't have the system to support that. And it's not possible to do that manually. Like if you have to pick up the phone for a $5,000 trade on which you literally make at the spreads at the time, you don't make more than $5, then you can't have enough salespeople and traders to actually manage all that flow. It's got to be electronic. So some firms adapted, some firms shut down, some others pivoted. Genesis became very big at lending. And so that, that was a big change in the OT markets since circa like, well, 2016, 2017 were slow years, but 2018, 2019 were big. Yeah, no, it's interesting you bring up those two particular points. One is around a business model around just, uh, if I separate those two out, market making into exchanges. And the other one is these kind of OTC product, either streaming or, you know, voice previously, a lot more voice dependent, because I've been comparing this to the traditional markets. And obviously, traditional markets started off like myself in a pit here in London on life or CME and CBOT and has gone to like, if you look at the market making now, it's a high frequency game with how much, you know, how many dollars can you spend on uh, servers and uh, how many devs can you have compared to traders. Now, you know, crypto is starting to go that way. But what's interesting about crypto is obviously, you know, on CoinFlex, we've got, you know, one and two man teams that trade as much as some of the other big trading firms out there, the, the, the household names like, you know, yourselves and others. How do you see that trend going in crypto? Will it still stay democratic enough that a two man or a, a professor in Zurich, who was one of the biggest Bitfinex market makers and a CoinFlex market maker, could carry on making a, an income whilst teaching, doing his day job versus the towers on and of the world who've now come in and have got hundreds and hundreds of people and trying to replicate what they see in TradFi in crypto. How do you mm-hmm. see that playing out? It is just possible to carve out a, a bit of a niche for a few reasons. And we see Wintermute is one company that emerged more recently and became a large market maker on exchange because there's two reasons. One, the bars to entry are not very high in terms of pricing. So you don't need to pay for data. You don't need to pay for the extremely fast location. Although, I mean, that was true maybe two years ago. Now you do. I think you cannot compete now if you don't have at least the pseudo collocation that exchanges use, which is typically to be in the same data center on a VPC, on a, Mm. like a, yeah, like Amazon Direct Connect or some, whatever it's called. I think that's called Direct Connect, if I remember. So you need to have that, but it's still not that expensive. And if even your own set of dedicated internet lines is not going to cost in crypto to get you going, it's not going to cost more than a million dollars a year, which, okay, that's a big amount. But if you compare to how much a virtue or a city that are paying for connectivity, it just, it doesn't compare, right? Like just the, the fastest fiber cable between London and New York, Ibernia, is something like $250,000 a month. And that's just one line. And if you don't have it, you can't even compete. And in fact, even if you have it now, there's microwave now, sorry, shortwave, not microwave, over the Atlantic. And so you can go even faster than that. So you can still compete with low-ish spend in crypto because of uh, not everyone charges for data. And that's going to remain the case for the foreseeable future because you can't cater to a retail client base if you tell them that, well, you're going to have to pay for data. That's just unfair. That wouldn't fly. And secondly, the lack of 
I, and I don't say that in a bad way, but the lack of standardization between the different exchange matching engines make it so that, and the multiplicity of venues make it so that you can really fine tune your stuff to be really adapted to this or that exchange and still make a living. So to give an example, well, most of the big crypto exchanges are websites. And so they're all implemented in different ways. They have the WebSocket, the REST, et cetera. So some exchanges, for instance, they will broadcast your private trades before the public trades. And so a simple strategy, especially considering for crypto, you can do very small orders. So you can place a lot of small orders, let's say for like 100 of one Bitcoin at different price levels. And so when the market moves, those small orders are going to be triggered. They're going to generate a fill for you. Yeah. You're going to see that fill before the public tape. And that informs you as to where the market's going before everyone else has really seen it. And mm. that's not really possible in traditional markets. Well, first of all, they try to send the data to everyone at the same time, although it's not always the case. But in traditional markets, you have like minimum order sizes. They're not trivial, right? And you can't just like layer 100 orders at different price levels for 100 of a Bitcoin. It doesn't work like that. And so those reasons like that, that are really have to do with first ethos of crypto and the microstructure, you can still make a living. Even being a specialist trading between just two exchanges, right? It's still possible. Yeah, absolutely. The bet that B2C2 has made was to be present on all exchanges and to have more general purpose uh, systems rather than to be a specialist that just does, does one thing. Yeah, and then of, uh, the other trend, obviously, we're seeing this OTC trading side of it. People are quoting larger and larger size for smaller and smaller spreads. So it's becoming you know, very competitive there as well. And this kind of brings me on to why I wanted to ask you, you know, you recently sold a chunk of the business to SBI in Japan. And I know the last few years, you guys have probably been one of the largest uh, liquidity providers in uh, Japan for the kind of the local brokerages. And um, mm-hmm. I forget the, the the names of the brokerages there, uh, like even even for the... For yeah, the, the, the yeah. Yeah. Correct. And is that sort of, because it's becoming more of an arms race, is that why you sort of decided to sell a chunk of the business to SBI? Or was that sort of, is it around more around balance sheet or market access or just getting uh, tired of market making? Mm-hmm. Well, today, the players that are looking to get into the market, they have different needs from the crypto native players that we're used to. And having less than $100 million of equity capital makes them nervous. And so the idea that as a crypto trading firm, typically you're not going to have a billion dollar of capital. That's not just not the case. And so from a credit perspective, the banks find it difficult to work with you. And I remember having a yeah, conversation with Fidelity back in the day. They were working with Circle, I think, at the time. And Circle had raised $300 million dollars. And we had not raised, I think we had raised just a few million, almost nothing, because being profitable, we just didn't feel that we needed to raise. And Fidelity said, well, you know, it would be nicer if you had, you know, $50 million of equity, we would, that would make our credit department much more comfortable. And there was nothing we can do about that because we had no intention of raising money just for the sake of raising. And we were paying dividends, so we didn't maintain that high level of equity capital. Now, funny enough, I went back to them later and I said, well, look, the $300 million of Circle that they raised, where, where is it gone? <laughs> they, they clearly are not in the, in the market anymore. So it's a bit more complicated than that. But in reality, you do need, when you speak to a bank, it's easy to convince the business side, meaning just the FX desk, that uh, they want to trade crypto with you. But it's not easy to convince, well, first the compliance department, 
all the time. It's a bank. But also the credit department operates independently. It's not like at a small crypto shop where you can say, well, you know, I want to trade on Binance and I feel comfortable with Binance and everyone, the same person makes both decisions, the commercial decision and the credit decision. At the bank, they have a cookie cutter approach. So having the balance sheet of SBI behind us is tremendously useful there because and it's not just the balance sheet in terms of guarantees or potential injections of capital, but simply the fact that if you're an institution, you can trade Bitcoin directly with SBI. So you can just face SBI, trade with them. It just happens that the market making, the liquidity behind it is just B2C2s. So that makes a huge difference. For some players, SBI being a bank or a banking group, depending on the entity that you face, then that ticks the box. I'm glad to hear this, Max, because there's some really nasty rumors going around you that you're trying to retire. So I'm glad you're around for a bit longer. So (laughs) (laughs) a subject you've also spoken about in the past and was around this sort of the uh, grayscale, the GBTC premium. And that's the resurface again, because obviously Barry Silbert is now talking about uh, trying to apply to move the fund from a close end fund to a uh, ETF. And there's a lot of obviously ETFs getting approved. What do you think is going to happen to this premium? Firstly, do you think it's possible for a close end fund to become an ETF? And but in the meantime, what's your view on this premium? Because I think it's still around 15 or 16%. And everyone is expecting it to sort of close the gap to zero. I just loaded it up. It's at minus 13.5% at the moment. But there's two alternatives. Uh, if I remember, there's about yeah, $30, $40 billion of AUM in GBTC, which is not actual money that's been injected. It's People have put money in it historically, and then it grew tremendously. I don't know how much was actually injected but maybe call it like 10 billion and the average uh, fund uh, holder is up like 4x or something like that. So there's $40 billion there. There's nothing at the moment that lets you get out at the net asset value. So if Barry Silver wants to, he can just collect his, I think, 2% fee or something in that range, 2% fee for the rest of time and put $30 billion in his pocket. Of course, that would be a huge scandal to just drain an entire fund of its assets uh, and putting that in your pocket. That would be not cool. Now, I don't think there's anything that legally prevents such an outcome. I think it's got to do with reputation and just trying to be a a nice guy. (laughs) And the alternative is indeed to try to convert the fund. I think they could also potentially buy the fund fund back. But the problem is that it's too big now. You know, they potentially they could, I mean, they would need to buy $40 billion. And then the fund being, I guess, a single LP fund, there would only be them. Then they could potentially would be easier to to wind it down or to convert it. But to convert it, whilst there's potentially thousands of smallholders, is a bit more complicated. I don't think it's impossible. I think it's actually eminently doable, but there's got to be a will. And I think that what's going to drive it is just going to be the optics of being one of the biggest flagship crypto companies or crypto conglomerates, I guess, or a conglomerate, and having a product that's really failing. Because at the moment, it, it is kind of failing. So I think they have to fix that just for to remain at the forefront yeah. of the crypto effort. No, I agree. Yeah. And just to round it up with the two By little way, things I that... I own some GBTC, which I bought at a big discount. And so I'm, I'm all for Barry Silbert coming in and saving us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah perfect. I'll let him know. Uh, just to end it off, Max, because uh, we're running out of time here. Now, when we met in Hong Kong you know, pre-COVID, I definitely remember that yeah. uh, you, di- you didn't drink the whole night. And yet someone told me that you were a beer salesman once. And so I'm trying to reconcile this uh, 
difference in my head. Were you a non-drinking beer salesman or you're a beer salesman who drank and then stopped drinking? Just for the record. No, I stopped drinking beer. I used to drink beer and I, I don't know. Well, I don't drink alcohol at all. It's not religious. I mostly, I guess, for health reasons, I guess. I, I wanted to, to be more in shape, etc. But yeah, I used to run one of the biggest bars in Europe. It was <laughs> the main student bar in college. Uh, in uni, and it was absolutely humongous. The only bigger bar in the country at the time was a football stadium, to give you a sense of the scale. Because where I was for undergrad was quite an interesting place where the students were responsible for organizing most of what happened on the in the town. And so that bar was simply huge. I remember that the first night that we had, whilst I was the boss of the bar, we sold approximately just under 15,000 beers, which is a lot. If, and you imagine, obviously, students drink a lot, but still, you know, that's pretty for, it's got to be for like 2,000 people, right? Everyone drinking something like six beers at most. And that was just beer, plus there were the spirits on the side. And funny enough, in terms of spirits, we were after a very big cafe in Marseille, we were the main outlet for uh, Ricard, which is pastis. You know, that weird yes. drink. It's an acquired taste, I think. It is It and is an after-dinner drink, I think, right? But yeah, yeah, yeah definitely, like, definitely acquired. Yeah. yeah, a little bit like Paul. Yeah. So we were the second biggest place for that in the world. And that made it so that once a year, the entire staff, because it was basically like uh, around 10 of us, lived on top of the bar. We had flats on top of the bar, and then the bar was the, the ground floor. And so... All 10 of us were invited once a year to the private island of the, the Ricard family, which is called uh, the Ampe Island in the Mediterranean. And we just go there for yeah, a weekend of frolicking and doing random stuff like jet skis and rock climbing or all sorts of stuff like that, just because we were like a, a major big customer. Major seller. Yeah, absolutely. That was really funny. Fantastic. And the other rumor I used to hear about you, uh, which I wanted to clear up, was that despite being crypto from the 2012 onwards or even earlier, that you were never a real believer in crypto, although you loved trading it, that you weren't a fundamental massive hodler. Is that true as well? Or have you changed your mind? Or Well, I'm a bit like Arthur from BitMEX in that respect. I'm a bit of a square. But I think that both of us have evolved our views. Back in the day, Arthur was also publicly out saying that him being the major shoulder of BitMEX, you know, he was very exposed to crypto. In fact, BitMEX used to be, I remember, I think it was 2014 or something like that, Arthur approached B2C2, we were much bigger than BitMEX at the time, and they wanted to strike an equity deal like for like 5% of BitMEX in exchange for market making. I was like, oh, mate, there's so many exchanges <laughs> left and right. I'm not sure if we can do this. And so, you know, the dynamic was very different. And so clearly sure. he went nothing when Bitcoin was small to a massive big swinging dick, if I may use the term, with the success, the, the wide success that BitMEX has been. And so back in the day, the both of us were, we thought we don't need to be exposed to actual physical crypto because we've got enough exposures just like that, which is true. But of course, as our company started to do well and we were able to also assure that our financial well-being wasn't linked to the gyration of the market anymore, you know, we're able to put some money aside. And I think our views evolved. And you've seen in his uh, Crypto Digest, Arthur also has become a bit more vocal about his, his belief in crypto. And same for me, you know, I used to view crypto as a way to build a business, i.e. B2C2, but now I see it more 
for its actual benefits. And to me, the main one that speaks to me is the risk of asset confiscation. I think it's the censorship resistance, the fact that the state cannot take your crypto. Well, I mean, of course, it can send the police to your place. But other than that, you can really protect your asset from confiscation because they're not held physically somewhere. If you want, you can have what we used to call a brain wallet. You can just memorize words in your head and that's it. That's your crypto holdings. And that I think is quite important. I think it's more important than some other narratives. I never believed in remittances. People said that's going to transform international payments. I never believed in that because I knew being one of the biggest companies between, uh, sorry, behind intra-country ARBs, so, you know, selling in Europe and buying in Mexico and doing those FX ARBs that work, BTC has always been very good at because I traded a lot of FX at Goldman, specifically FX swaps, and I had very good contacts and we got very good banks and people that did FX with us when they did, they were not comfortable trading with random crypto companies. And so we're always very big in those international money flows that did arbitrage around crypto. And I knew that remittances were always reliant on a fiat leg. Always, all remittances, there's an FX leg, and that's what's expensive. It's not moving the funds around, it's the, uh, at least not from the easy side, it's always the FX leg that's expensive. If you send crypto, yes, that's cheap, but the remittance are still not gonna be cheap because they rely in part on fiat. So I never thought that narrative was interesting. And in fact, you you can see it's been mostly forgotten now. No one says, no we're going to do international payments much cheaper through Bitcoin. No one says that. No worries. Max, thank you so much for this. It's been fascinating talking to you and thank you for coming on to uh, Crypto Unstacked. Thank you, Sudhu. Thanks, mate. And I hope to see you again soon. Absolutely. Physically. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Cheers.